good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Luke chapter 1? Uh, Luke chapter 1 is where we'll be in the Word together this morning. Uh, as Timothy said, I'm, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and, and really glad uh, to be able to, to share in the Word uh, together. Uh, and I'm excited that uh, today we'll be starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke entitled, That You May know. Uh, This phrase is taken from uh, the passage that we'll be reading from this morning. Uh, Luke, he uh, he gives his account of of Jesus, and we'll take the next several months, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke for the summer as we survey uh, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Now, uh, just so you know, the, the best way to read a book is by what's called authorial intent. <clears throat> Basically, you should read a book the way the author wants you to read the book. All right, so Stephen King uh, atten- intends his books to be read a certain way. Maya Angelou intends her books to be uh, read in a certain way, and uh, such is the case with the authors of Scripture. Uh, for Luke, he's explicit in his intent for writing his gospel. Uh, his intent is certainty, certainty of faith. Now, that's a bit of a cuss word in our skeptical culture, isn't it? That it it can feel naive or misguided or small-minded to have certainty uh, about anything, uh, especially as it relates to faith. But the purpose of Luke writing is is certainty uh, that you would know. And so we'll take the next several months to consider what this means and the importance of, of our Christian faith. Luke wrote the majority of the New Testament. Uh, his gospel is the longest in all of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote the most books, but Luke wrote the most words. And if you couple it with the book of Acts, uh, Luke has written over 25% of the New Testament. He takes a lot of time and attention and detail to explain the gospel. And so we will take some time to survey some of that. And what's interesting, what I like about these verses that we're about to read now, is that Luke actually makes room for those of you who doubt. Uh, Luke is about to say to us that, I see you. And he is inviting those who doubt that may be experiencing a gap between what they have been taught and what they might know. So I want to invite you to stand as we read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Uh, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know 
the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to know you. Lord, there's much struggle and strife in our world today. And Lord, in the midst of that, you, you see, you know, you care. And you entered into this world in a way that would bring such hope and grace and love. Lord, would you give us a taste of that in this moment? Lord, I ask that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart, and that you would transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. His name was Roy Regals. He played for the University of California, Berkeley. And in 1929, he was their captain. In this particular year, they made it all the way to the Rose Bowl to face off against Georgia Tech. The game was scoreless early on in the second quarter. And in the first play from the scrimmage, the ball was fumbled by Georgia Tech. Roy quickly grabbed the ball and pulled it in, and he made a beeline for the end zone. The crowd erupted in shouts as Roy ran over 60 yards to the end zone. The only thing that was standing in his way, the only thing of resistance going on for Roy was a player that was coming on his heels behind him. And as he was running, something strange happened with this player that was running behind him. This player that was coming up, uh, running, getting closer and closer, this player that he assumed was a Georgia Tech player was screaming at him. But what was weird was that the voice sounded familiar. And so Roy looked back, and it was one of his teammates running behind him. He started to slow down, and he began to hear what his teammate was saying. Benny Lam, his own teammate, caught up to him and was shouting to him, You're going the wrong way! Somehow, in the midst of all the frenzy and excitement, as Roy got a hold of that fumbled ball, he got turned around, and he was sprinting towards his own team's goal. By the time he realized this, it was too late. The other team had caught up to them, and as Roy says it, it felt like the whole team jumped on him. The game ended with the California Golden Bears losing to the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets 8-7. to seven. And where Regals was infamously nicknamed Wrong Way Regals. For with all the excitement and all the achievement and all the enthusiasm, all of that amounted to nothing in this moment 
because he wasn't going the right way. As believers, we struggle to go the right way. Sin throws us off. Brokenness in this world has us disoriented. Distraction upon distraction gets us turned around. And yet, the Lord in his grace and his love, he, he draws us to himself as the goalpost to which we should be running toward. There's no better place to see this image than the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, we get to see the heart of God for the world and his people. Scholars will note that Luke was written by Luke, the Gentile physician. Since he is a physician, he would have the education and the expertise to do the type of investigation and research necessary to write what he Wrote. As a Gentile, he had a particular perspective to see the variety of people in their backgrounds that Jesus cared for and ministered to. And when we get to verse 1, we get to see the parameters of his research and investigation. It says that he encountered eyewitnesses of Jesus, servants of the word. And these servants of the word, they were talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies therein. Luke would have known the eyewitnesses to Jesus. He, he probably drew from the apostles, from Mark's gospel, even from Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we know that he would have known these eyewitnesses by the way he writes the book of Acts, that there are several occasions when he uses we language. We did this. We went here. Luke was in the thick of things. Why is this important? Christianity's claim in this world is that it is a historic, historical faith. That Christianity is not some once upon a time fairy tale. Christianity is not some American spiritualism. No, Christianity makes specific historical claims that have stood the test of time. Now, as I was preparing for this message, I started to feel a little tug and pressure because I'm aware of the world that we live in, that in our society, majority of people do not believe in the historical claims of Christianity. Many of you are right here in this room and, and on the lawn, and those that aren't here, you, you know someone that does not trust the historical claims of Christianity. And I feel this, this pressure of, of defensiveness. And there is a place for apologetics, right? Apologetics comes from a Greek word that means defense, uh, defending the faith. And there have been wonderful apologists that ha I have been impacted by greatly, great apologists that have uh, addressed the validity of the scriptures, the trustworthiness of Christianity. Norman Geisler, Frank Turek, Rebecca McLaughlin, Vadi Bakum, Eric Mason, the list goes on and on of those who have defended the faith. And I feel this pressure to kind of bring all of that into this message. And yet, when you look at Luke chapter 1, that's not actually the thrust of his gospel. Luke is not embarking on some battle of historicity. When he's writing, 
The matter of fact is either it's true or it's not. He is writing in a context where he wouldn't have to, to build a case. He's writing in a context where people would have known about this world-changing event, this, this worldwide explosion of faith. There were many people that were eyewitnesses that could say yes or no to what he's writing. He didn't have to build a case for it. He's just reporting on the facts. If I were to talk about the events of 9-11, terrorist attack on the World Trade Center, you could go and research to, to verify my claims, but there are many of you in this room and on the lawn that you remember being there. You have a personal stake in it. You saw how it changed the world. Luke was writing in a time when people would have known about this world-changing event. He did not have to come with an argument. That certainly is not his mentality. He's not aiming for the head. He's aiming for the heart. The reality is winning an argument only goes so far with a resistant heart. The reality is what we need is the Holy Spirit's help. I mean, you read the Gospels and you see that Jesus himself came and proclaimed himself as Lord and Savior and still people refused. We need the Holy Spirit's help to be receptive to truth, this historical faith. Then we get to verse 3, and uh, in verse 3, we learn two things about this gospel. One, Luke decided to write an orderly account of everything from the beginning. And remember, he's a physician, so he would have had the resources to do this kind of exhaustive investigation. Uh, but, but it's not just that. It, this wasn't just a project for Luke. Uh, he wasn't just writing a dissertation. Luke was, was there. This wasn't just a historical faith. This was a, a personal faith. He, he knew the people. 2 Timothy 4.11, we, we see that, that Luke was one of the last people to encounter the Apostle Paul before he was beheaded for his faith in prison. Can you imagine the environment that Luke was writing in? This, this world-changing event has happened, and all around Luke, Christians are being murdered. Christians are being imprisoned. Luke has probably lost loved ones. This isn't just a historical exercise for him. This is a personal faith. Luke is committed to this, this gospel with much risk. The second thing we see is that we learn Luke's audience. No other gospel is as specific uh, as Luke in who they're writing to. Luke is writing to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. And Luke isn't being complimentary here. When he's saying most excellent, he, uh, scholars note that he's likely referring to someone that was of, of high social status, probably a political figure. In any case... This gospel is from a Gentile to a Gentile. And this is an important note. Because Luke and Theophilus would have been men from their culture, from their time. They, they were men from the Greco-Roman culture. And for Theophilus, this high-status person, 
for him to, to join this new and provocative and risky religion, that, that meant something. This gospel was written in a society that was pluralistic, that was rampant with spiritual and moral relativism. There, there were more gods than, than you could count, and, and the operating assumption was that you would make room for all gods and all expressions in your life. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And one of the primary reasons of persecution of Christians is because Christians were unwilling to worship multiple gods. They were unwilling to be fluid in their ethics. They would say things like, Jesus is Lord. They would say things like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And this Roman society, this pluralistic pagan society, they just wouldn't tolerate that. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And this small phrase, what's, what's real interesting about Theophilus, most excellent, is a political figure, a Roman official, you are expected to participate in this pluralistic society. You are expected to participate in the pagan festivals. You are expected to participate in the dinings of these meats sacrificed to idols. It was your civil duty as a leader in the society to participate. So this small phrase, most excellent, actually comes with very big implications. Almost Luke is saying that if you believe anything after these verses, you could lose everything. If you join this historical personal faith, that, that means that you'll be living for another kingdom and living for another king. And if you are more concerned with your status in this society than you are your status in the kingdom of God, it just won't work. So then we get to verse 4, and we see the purpose of Luke's writing. We see Luke's thesis statement. Why is he writing? That you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's a bit of a complicated statement, isn't it? So what, what Luke is doing here with Theophilus is he's, he, he's not just giving him facts. He, uh, Theophilus on some level already knows this. He's been taught this. He, he's not just worried about facts. He's, he's concerned about certainty about the facts. And, and that's kind of interesting if you think about it, right? I mean, in the midst of this, this world-changing event, in the midst of eyewitnesses of Jesus, in the midst of conversions happening like crazy, in the midst of rising persecution, in the midst of all of that, Luke still makes room for doubt. Just because you have the facts in front of you, just because the facts are right in your face, that does not mean you have certainty. And we know that, don't we? We are living in a cultural moment where the trend is becoming more and more what theologians and sociologists call uh, deconstruction of faith. We're in a cultural trend where the default position towards religion is suspicion, questioning, and doubt. You can go to social media and you can, you can see things like hashtag deconverted and hashtag exvangelical. 
Seems like every month there's some prominent used-to-be Christian that's coming out and saying, I can no longer continue with this facade of being a Christian. It sent shockwaves for some and an empowerment for others. They feel empowered to doubt. What do you do when you don't have certainty? That's a whole sermon in and of itself. So let me just commend to you a couple books that I think are really helpful for those of you in here that are, that are doubting. Uh, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin and Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. That's written by various authors. Uh, in these books, you, you, you see kind of these, these three broad categories of doubt. Uh, that for those of you that doubt, you could probably uh, sum it up in at least one, two, or three of these questions. One, is Christianity true? Two, is Christianity good? And three, how do you know? If we had time, I'd go with kind of the fourth category of what difference does it make. But for the sake of time, we'll just go with these three questions. Is Christianity true? Is Christianity good? And how do you know? Is it true that Jesus existed? Is it true that Jesus is God? Is it true, the the virgin birth? Is the Bible true? How true? Uh, Is it truth or does it just contain truth within it? All these questions around truth. But from my perspective, what I see more often in this emerging generation where I see the choking point more so, that the, the, the doubt is not so much about the truth claims of Christianity, even though that is important. What I see is the, the choking point, the struggle is the goodness of Christianity. Is it, is it good to be a Christian? I mean, is it actually harmful to be a Christian? I mean, if Christianity is good, why were Christians slaveholders? If Christianity is good, Why is there hashtag church too, where you see pastors and ministry leaders that have abused the vulnerable in the church? If Christianity is true, why are Christians supporting this or that political figure that clearly does not represent Christian principles? Just doesn't seem good. I don't want to be naive. I don't want to be antiquated. I don't want to be rigid. So it just doesn't seem good to be a Christian. I like how Rebecca McLaughlin responds to this whole notion of the goodness of Christianity. She she basically says, saying Christianity is bad is like saying drugs are bad without distinguishing cocaine from life-saving medications. Are drugs bad? Maybe. Which ones are you talking about? Is Christianity bad? Maybe. Which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the Christianity that fueled the abolitionist movement against slavery? Are you talking about the Christianity that that led Christians to start the majority of hospitals and orphanages? Which Christianity are you talking about? Because there's a bunch of Christianities that I wholeheartedly reject. Third question, how do you know? How do you know? Whatever it is that you believe about Christianity, 
How do you know that your belief about it is correct and accurate? How, how, how do you know? How do you know that you're a Christian? Is it because you were raised Christian? Is it because it's your personal truth? Is it because you're, you came to church? I mean, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than coming to a garage makes you a car. So how, how do you know? How do you gain certainty? So again, read, read those two books. I think they help with good wrestling to that. So here's the good news, bad news. The good news, bad news is that every single Christian struggles with doubt. If we didn't struggle, we wouldn't sin. Now hear me, hear me. It is not sinful to doubt. Sin is what could happen in our doubts when we don't come back to the things that we have been taught. That when we doubt, we are put before two goalposts, either towards God or away from God. In which direction are you taking your doubt? So over the next several months, we will use Luke to come back to the things that many of you have been taught. For several of you, a lot of this stuff that we will talk about over the next several months will not be new. But I like how a pastor once said it, that, that preaching is not so much informing you of things that you don't know, but rather it's about reminding you of things that you should never forget. Are you certain of the things you have been taught? Luke makes room for us to wrestle with that. Again, I like how Rebecca McLaughlin uh, talks about this. She says, believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life is not a one-time posture of the mind. Rather, it is a daily battle of the heart. I like that. When Luke says, I'm writing so that you may know... He's writing to say, I'm inviting you into the daily battle of the heart. That's his invitation to us. So do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Luke is going to introduce us to him. He's going to talk about this Jesus. He will let us know that Jesus, he is the great healer. He's a friend of sinners. That he's a merciful king. If I had a cross-cultural church, I'd get one or two amens right there. That Luke is going to tell us that he is the peace in the midst of storms. That he's the Lord of Sabbath rest. Again, I wish I had at least one or two amens right there. That Luke is going to tell us that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Luke is going to help us to see that he died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. The songwriter says he's a way maker, a miracle worker, a promise keeper, a light in the darkness. But do you know him? Do you know this Jesus? That's the question that we're wrestling with. So maybe so that we would take this invitation and it would lead us to the right goal. That it would lead us to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
Amen. 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 Let's pray. So, Lord, we do confess that we struggle with doubt. Lord, you are a king that has revealed yourself to a people that are often too blind to that reality. Lord God, would you help us to see? Would you help us to know? Would you help us to worship in our doubt that we may have certainty of the things we have been taught? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.